Well, good evening, GOC. Um, We are continuing our series in Romans chapter 6. So you can turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. And I do want to thank Chris for allowing me this opportunity to open up God's Word with you all. And also Riley for leading us in worship, knowing that you just finished a midterm. Now, I want to begin with a question. The question is, who is your master? Who is your master? This was the question that I had to ask myself 13 years ago as I sat in these very seats where you were sitting. God wanted me at UCLA for a reason, and surely it wasn't for my academics. I actually got rejected my very first time. But, you know, UCLA came around and realized the mistake that they made, and so they offered me a second-choice major. But the real reason, I would say, that God wanted me here at UCLA was for me to answer this question. Who was my master? For 18 years of my life, the answer was loud and clear. It was sin. Sin was my master, and I was its slave. Whenever sin beckoned to me, I would bow the knee down in obedience to its desires. Sin had reigned in my life, and sin was my king, and I was its servant. In Romans 1, Paul goes through a long list of different types of sins. I've compiled a shorter list for you. Let me read it to you. Sexual immorality, greed, envy, deceit, gossip, haters of God, arrogance, disobedience to parents, untrustworthiness, unloving, and being unmerciful. Perhaps some of these might describe your sins, or perhaps all of them. For me, it was, yes, all of these and much more. But there was one particular sin that mastered my life. In junior high, like many of you, you had to take a sex ed class. And although it was meant to be informative, it actually grew my curiosity and plunged me into all kinds of sexual sins. And as I grew older, other influences started to pour fuel onto my fiery desires. And I found myself seeking after other forms of immorality. My mind was consumed by it. It affected how I controlled my time and my scheduling after school. And it even fueled my first dating relationship with secrecy and deception. I'll spare you all the details, but the point is this. My life was dominated by sexual immorality. Who was my master? Sin. Despite all that, I started going to church. And can you guess for what reason? It was a girl. And even though um, I had ulterior motives, 
God was using that and working in my life. When I came to UCLA, I came to Grace on campus here and attended Grace Church and joined a small group. And just like we do in small groups, in the beginning, we would share our testimonies. And my testimony went basically like this. Hi, my name is Stanley, and I'm a Christian because I go to church. That was it. But by God's grace, I continued to stay in small group. And God, through my small group leader and in our small group, we started to learn about who I was as a sinner, deserving hell and death. We also studied about who Jesus Christ is as the Son of God and what he did to die on the cross for my sins and resurrected from the dead to conquer death and sin. But as I was taking all of this in, I kept on nodding my head. Whatever my small group leader would say, yeah, oh yeah, that makes sense, yeah, I agree. But in actuality, my life didn't reflect what I was learning, what the Bible was saying. And it wasn't until a few months later that God had graciously used a fellow geoseer to confront my life of sin. He showed me that during that, con uh, that confrontation, I realized that I had never repented. I had never repented of my sins. Even though I was in GOC, I did all the GOC things, my life was ruled by sin. But there was that question again. Who is my master? Shortly after that confrontation, God had taught me all of the things that we learned at church, at GOC, in small group. It just began to sink in. And just like a light bulb turned on, God, by his grace, showed me what I needed to do and who I needed to trust. Sin no longer became my master, and Jesus Christ was my master. It was all of grace that God had saved me, and it wasn't anything that I did that could save me. So let me ask you the same question. Who is your master? When you examine your life, do you see that sin is master over you? Or is Christ your master? If sin is your master, no matter how hard you try or how good of a life you lead, you will never be able to break the chains of sin. It is only by God's grace that he would allow, he would break those bonds of sin for you. And it is by grace that he would give you faith to believe in Christ. He was the one who lived the perfect life, but yet died on the cross for your sins and mine. And if you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you will be saved. I urge you to think about this and trust Place your trust in Jesus Christ right now if you haven't. Because the passage that we're going into today 
will not make sense unless you know that Jesus Christ is your master. So if you're already at Romans chapter 6, we'll be reading from verses 11 through 14. Verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Our main passage today is from verses 12 to 14, but we had to include verse 11. Because in verse 12, it begins with the word, therefore. And as our beloved shepherd, Chris G., often so wisely asks, if you see a therefore, we must ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? And it's therefore because last week, Jesse taught us from verses 1 through 11, three truths about who we are as believers in Christ. That we were first dead, but now we were made alive, and we are free. And as a result of these truths, Paul gave us the imperative, the very first imperative beginning in verse 11, which says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. And he showed us that this was the very first imperative, the very first command in all of Romans, which is to consider with your thought, with your mind, what to think upon this truth. Because before you can do anything else, you first must need to think it. And therefore, we must think upon this truth that we are dead to sin and alive to Christ, to God in Christ. And as we lead into verses 12 to 13, Paul gives us four commands for living under God's grace. That's four commands for living under God's grace. And as you hear these commands, I want you to go back and remember God's grace in your own life. Just as Ephesians 2, verse 8 says, For you have been saved by grace. It's God's grace that has saved you, and God's grace that will sanctify you. Let grace be the reason and the motive for you to obey these commands. So the very first command is withdraw yourself from sin's reign. Withdraw yourself from sin's reign. This is taken directly from verse 12, which says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Earlier, I asked you the question, who is your master? If you're a Christian, then the answer is Jesus Christ. That is why you cannot and should not let sin reign in your life. 
The truth is, if Jesus Christ is already your master and already your king, that's impossible. And notice how Paul says, do not let sin reign. Paul doesn't say, do not sin. Because that would be impossible. If you have been a Christian, even for one day, you'll realize that to not sin is not possible, which is why Paul doesn't say that. He clarifies, for example, in, verse, uh, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul even testifies that by saying this, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. You see, Paul knows that he had not been, become perfect. And that is not our goal in this lifetime. So Paul says, instead, do not let sin reign in your life. The idea of allowing someone to reign is a little bit foreign to us, but for the Roman believers, it's something that they would have understood immediately because they were ruled by an emperor or a king. So imagine with me that you are a subject under a king, perhaps in the Middle Ages. And the king gave an edict saying that you must pay 10% taxes by April 15th. And, and so, yes, as a subject under this king, you will need to pay these taxes. And let's say you end up traveling on vacation and going to a nearby kingdom, and that king sends out an edict and says, if you are a subject in my kingdom, you will pay 25% taxes. But you, as a traveler, would not be subject to that 25% tax because you're not under that king's reign. In the same way, you, as a Christian, are now under Christ's reign. Christ is your king, and therefore you obey Christ. And of course, you know, it's, to be honest, we, there are times in our lives where we may fall into sin's temptation. Perhaps we wander into sin's kingdom. And therefore, we get tempted and end up crossing its borders into sin's domain. And the consequences of that is to obey its lusts, which is what says, in verse 12, so that you obey its lust. So Paul here is warning us and warning you as a Christian that even though you are and should be under Christ's reign, you must, you end up subjecting yourself under sin's reign for that moment and end up obeying its lust. Isn't that what ends up happening sometimes? How many of you have sinned this week? You don't have to raise your hands, but thank you. <laughs> and perhaps you were hanging out or studying in your room and some kind of distraction pops up and you notice, you notice it, but you try to return to what you were doing. But at that point, you continue to think about it and you get tempted and you make that decision to eventually sin. And it doesn't matter what kind of sin it is, whether if it's sexual or stealing or lying or being angry or having pride, the pattern is the same. 
James in uh, verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 12, 14 and 15. James 1, 14 through 15, which says, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when that lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin is accomplished. So what can you do? Well, the Bible tells us that we can repent of our sins and seek his forgiveness. And in Romans 4, 7, it tells us that blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. That is God's grace upon our lives, that we would enjoy God's forgiveness through Christ. But what about this coming week? Perhaps when a temptation comes up to distract you, how can you fight against obeying sin's lust? The answer Paul gives us is, do not let sin reign. Remember that Christ rose from the dead to defeat sin and death so that he is now your master. That is the truth which you must dwell upon. So God is commanding you, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its lust. Not only are we to withdraw yourself from sin's reign, Paul transitions and gives us a second command, which is very closely tied to the first. The second command is this, withdraw your members from unrighteousness. Withdraw your members from unrighteousness. We find this in verse 13, the first part of verse 13, which says, Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Paul and the Lord is prohibiting us from presenting yourself to sin. Now, to present something is to present a, like a formal offering, like you would uh, an offering on an altar. Now, would you take a sacrifice and sacrifice it on the altar of sin? No, right? I don't think any of us would say yes to that question. But isn't that exactly what we do when we present the members of our bodies to sin? Paul reemphasizes the first command by giving this illustration, this visual illustration of the members of our body. So let's take that illustration and think about it. Do we can use our eyes to lust, to covet, to cheat. We can use our hands to steal or hit or make rude gestures. And we can use our tongues to lie, to slander, to gossip to belittle others and cause strife. These are just a few examples that we would use our members and present them to unrighteousness. But the bigger picture isn't necessarily about just using your members as an illustration, but to really remember not to present yourself in any respect, in any aspect to sin. In 1 Corinthians 6.19, it says this. 
Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. Paul tells us that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which, we, that, which means we ought to keep it holy. In addition, Paul also says that we are not to present yourself as instruments of unrighteousness. Now, the word instrument here means like a tool, like you would use a tool, a shovel, or an axe, or a hoe. And as it um, also could mean weapon, like a sword or a spear. In other words, your life, your members, can be used as an instrument or weapon of unrighteousness. Your life can be used as an instrument or a weapon for sin and lustful desires. I don't know if you guys watch the news or follow the news, but there is a great debate in America regarding guns. I'm not here lobbying for anything, just to assure you, but merely using this as an illustration to make a point. Because the debate is that many people say that guns are good or that guns are bad, but depending on which side of the fence you are on, each group has a compelling argument. For those who hate guns, argue that guns are bad because they are used to hurt or kill people. For example, December 2015, in San Bernardino, California, just two hours away, a husband and wife duo crashed a Christmas party, killing 14 innocent civilians and injuring 22 others. Or November 2017, First Baptist Church of Sutherland Springs, Texas, a gunman, Devin Kelly, entered the church and killed 26 congregants, including women and children, and injuring 20 others. With examples like these, gun control advocates demand that guns must be banned. As you can see from this, this example, guns were used as a weapon for evil and great destruction. Would you pick up a gun and use it for evil? No, I don't think you would. But in the same way, why would you pick up use your, the members of your body for sin. Now, I understand that sin is a real struggle. It's spiritual warfare. One commentator says this, the battle is a spiritual one, but it is fought and won or lost in the daily decisions the believer makes about how to use his body. How will you fight sin? It's going to be one decision at a time. And it's going to be a continual battle. So I don't want you to fret and be worried about all the different battles coming at you at the same time. But take each battle, take each moment of temptation that arises and use it 
as a decision, as a battle, to make the decision to not use your, we- your members for sin. Well, we know that we're, what we're not supposed to do, but Paul also gives us what we are supposed to do instead. He's given us what not to do, which is what we should withdraw ourselves from sin's reign, and we are to withdraw our members from unrighteousness. On the flip side, he gives us our third command, which is we must present yourselves to God. This is the third command for living under God's grace, to present yourselves to God. This is found in verse 13, the the middle section, which says, present yourselves to God as living from the dead. For the Christian, instead of presenting your bodies as a sacrifice to sin, we are instead to present our bodies as a sacrifice to God. Paul here is talking not about our physical reality, but our spiritual, spiritual reality. Because in a few chapters later, in Romans 12, verse 1, he says this, that we are to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Here, Paul is telling us that we are a living and holy sacrifice, that we are to present our bodies, present ourselves to God in this way, in a holy manner, in a sanctified manner. We have been separated from sin, and now we have become righteous in God, in Christ, just as he declared to us in verse 11, that even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, we are to do this. We are to present ourselves to God because that is who we are in Christ. For example, if I were to go to LAX at the airport and I wanted to enter, pass through security, I would need to present my passport. Now, if I were to take my wife's passport and hand it to the TSA agent, and no matter how bored he is, he'll take a look at the passport picture of my wife and me and realize that I'm not as beautiful as my wife. You can tell her I said that. She's not here today. <laughs> so similarly, we are to make, we, if we are alive in God through Christ, we must present ourselves in that way as who we are, as who, as, as who you are. You cannot say that you are a Christian and continue to present your body as a sacrifice to sin. You need to present your body as an acceptable, holy, living sacrifice to God. And when you find yourself battling against sin and having to make that choice of following God or following sin, pray and ask the Lord to provide you that grace that the Lord knows the exact temptation that you are going through. Jesus knows, just as he describes in Hebrews 4, 15. 
And in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God tells us that he is faithful to let you endure and overcome each temptation. Remember that sin is no longer your master, but Christ is your master. Remember that you are not to present yourselves as members or instruments uh, to sin, but present yourselves to God. There is yet one more command, the fourth command, which, which Paul continues to explain, what it looks like to present yourselves to God. The fourth command for living under God's grace is to present your members to righteousness. This is found in the last part of verse 13, which says, present your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now, before going further, I want to explain a little bit and clarify what the righteousness is meant here. Because we're not talking about the righteousness of justification or the righteousness of salvation. Because as believers, we have already placed our faith in Christ, which saves us. We have already been justified by grace through faith in Christ. In Romans 4, verse 3, it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And that belief was his righteousness. So the righteousness that we're talking about here now is the righteousness of sanctification. Pastor John MacArthur defines sanctification as this. It is a gradual and ongoing transformation of a believer's nature where the Holy Spirit progressively works practical righteousness in the believer. So when we present our members as instruments of righteousness to God, the deeds that we do does not give us more credit or more merit before God, but instead it is the righteousness of sanctification, which is also told to us in Romans 6, verse 19. If you just go down a few verses later, it says, when we present our members as slaves to righteousness, it results in our sanctification. And again, in verse 22, Paul tells us that our sanctification is our benefit. So that's what we're talking about here. Earlier, I had given you an example of anti-guns in the anti-gun debate. Now, there's also the other side. The other side, the pro-guns that say guns are good and necessary. Pro-guns, pro-gun advocates say that they're necessary to stop criminals and to protect the innocent. Going back to the San Bernardino example, the two suspects were ultimately stopped by police officers who were using guns. Similarly, at the carnage in Sutherland Springs, Texas, the shooter was chased away by a good good Samaritan who was armed with his very own rifle. Now, these examples clearly show that guns were used as weapons of good. The good guys use guns to stop the bad guys from causing further harm. Although anti-gun protesters say that guns are bad, 
and pro-gun activists say that guns are good. Which one is it? Well, I'm not here to say whether guns are good or bad. But my point here is to show you that guns were used as weapons. They were used as instruments. Depending on who was wielding that gun, if it was a criminal, he used it for evil. If it was a good guy, police officer or a law-abiding citizen, he used it as a weapon for good. Likewise, you as a Christian are an instrument, a weapon. You can present yourself as a weapon of unrighteousness or righteousness. How will you present yourself? By God's grace, you have received Christ's righteousness. Remember that truth. Do you see that you have already been righteous, been made righteous through Christ? The result of our salvation, the result of our salvation is that you are now an instrument of righteousness. You must present yourself as members of righteousness. Just as in Romans 6:17, Paul puts it this way. Be obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which you were committed. You need to be obedient to righteousness. Similarly, John puts it this way in John 15, verse 10. When we love God, we will obey his commandments. What we're focusing on here is the deeds of righteousness that reflect your identity in Christ. So, We've seen that we would, through these four commandments that Paul gives us to live under grace, that we are to withdraw yourself from sin's reign, to withdraw your members from unrighteousness, and to present, instead, present yourselves to God and present your members to righteousness. What does that look like for you guys? If you have any, ever played any sport or strategy game, you will know that you must play both defense and offense. Because if you only play defense, the best that you can ever do is just tie at 0-0. Zero, zero. Or if you only played offense, the opponent would be able to score as many points as they wanted. Therefore, you have to play both defense and offense. This is also true of your battle against sin. You need to strategize and come up with a plan to play defense and offense. What that looks like is to be able to put off unrighteousness and put on righteousness. To withdraw your members from unrighteousness and to present your members to righteousness. Some say that the best defense is a good offense. In the NFL, do you think that the players just get on the field and start playing? No, right? They have to go to practice, and the coach draws up plays, and they practice those plays. They strategize. So what kind of strategy can you come up with for a good offense when that sin temptation comes? 
Let me give you an example of what that battle plan could, could look like. Take a step back and take a look back at when was the last time you had sinned. And as you think through that, deconstruct it. And what I mean by that is to start asking questions. Just like a team, after they play uh, a game, they would review the videos to see what they could have done differently, what they could have done better, and come up with a better plan or strategy. So how, when you look back and deconstruct your circumstances of making that decision of how you sinned, ask these questions of who was there or who may, maybe who wasn't there and what was it that you were doing? When did this happen? Where were you? Why did you do it? And how did you do it? And as you think through this, deconstruct it layer by layer, find out what was the trigger and don't place yourself in those circumstances. Are you a type of person that goes by your feelings, perhaps uh, based off of your impulse or your desires or your emotion or your wants at that moment? Or are you perhaps someone who thinks more, who plans and perhaps rationalizes through sin? And do you consider the consequences, perhaps uh, having a pros and cons list? And if that is the case, instead of thinking about the temptation and the sin, think about truth. The truth that we have learned today, or even when Paul says in Philippians 4.8, that whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, excellent, praiseworthy, dwell upon these things. Think about truth. Think about these things that would help you in your battle against sin. In addition, Paul gives us throughout the book of Romans, he tells the believers very many different practical ways that they can use their bodies for righteousness. And I've summarized a short list for you. You can find this as you read through Romans as well. We must love one another and give preference to one another. Devote yourselves to prayer. Serve the Lord. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Practice hospitality. Bless others. Be humble. Make peace with others. Forgive others. And obey government authorities. Perhaps you are thinking about some other ways even in your own life right now. Within GOC, I can offer you a few opportunities. Earlier, we made the announcement of small groups. I encourage you to be in part of a small group, to have accountability in it for your spiritual growth. We have different, many ministries as well, in outreach or in care team or A team. Fisherman team is looking for people to go out and share the gospel with. There's tabling team that are looking for people to help serve and f- at the table and flyer. You know, there are large groups on Friday nights or dorm Bible studies. And these are just a few ways that you can use, present your members to righteousness. And as you think about more and more opportunities to serve, 
you will realize that there are so many different ways that you can serve the Lord. And the thing is, when you are serving God and presenting yourselves to righteousness, you would have no time to present yourself to sin because you can't be doing both at the same time. You're either doing one or the other. I know this may sound like a daunting task, and sometimes it definitely doesn't sound easy. You might be overwhelmed with some kind of sin, as if sin really did reign in your life. But don't lose heart, because in verse 14, Paul gives us the motivation to pursue righteousness. In verse 14, it says this, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. This is a promise to you as a believer that sin will not be master over you. This is a fact for all believers that it is impossible for sin to be master over you because you have a new master in Christ. The power of sin has been surrendered because the power of the gospel has won. When you were under the law of Moses, it brought condemnation. But now you are under the law of grace. You live under God's grace because you have been saved by grace. Just as Ephesians 2.8 says, for by grace you have been saved. Or Acts 15.11, but we believe that we are saved through the, God, through the grace of the Lord Jesus. 2 Timothy 1.9, he has saved us not according to our works, but according to his grace. You as a Christian are living proof of God's grace in your life. And I encourage you to share that testimony with others. Share about God's grace in your life. And earlier I had shared my testimony and I want to continue to testify about God's grace. That through God and his graciousness, that he had delivered me from my sin. That he transformed my life from having sin as my master to having Christ as my master. The Lord had shown me through the word, through his scriptures, that his will for my life was my sanctification. He changed my heart to no longer pursue after the women of this world, but to pursue the type of woman that pleases and honors God. God graciously brought my wife, Lisa, into my life and as a gift. And God continues to be gracious to me each and every day. If the Lord is able to save a, great, uh, a wretched, immoral sinner like me, he can do that for you because he is the almighty, loving, saving father. In our, in our home, we have a plaque that quotes Joshua 24.15. And it says this, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Who will you serve? 